Welcome to a special In the Telling episode, the first in a new series called Between the Lines, in which my guests and I discuss the art and craft of storytelling using a non-fiction book as a springboard. In this episode, Krista Davies and I will be referencing Bounce, The Myth of Talent and the Power of Practice by Matthew Syed. Krista Davies is a producer at Centerpoint Legacy Theatre and the general manager at the M.T. Pitt, the world's premier Broadway backing track library. References made to the book, including excerpts and links to clarify concepts, are included in the show notes. For your listening convenience, this episode has been broken into chapters, available to those of you listening on platforms that support podcast chapters. Read between the lines. Krista Davies was indirectly one of the inspirations behind the In the Telling podcast, and these Between the Lines episodes in particular. Some of my favorite interactions with Krista over the past few years have taken place late at night in an empty theater lobby or well after the production meeting was over, and they always seem to include ideas from a non-fiction book one of us was reading. We've also talked about storytelling tropes and novelties from TV shows, movies, and of course theater. My enjoyment of those conversations was a large part of the genesis of this podcast, so when I decided to create this Between the Lines string of episodes... I just knew Krista Davies had to be my first book conversation guest. The basic premise of Bounce is summed up by this quote from psychologist and researcher Anders Ericsson. Quote, We deny that differences in talent are immutable, that is, due to innate talent. Instead, we argue that differences between expert performers and normal adults reflect a lifelong persistence of deliberate effort to improve performance. End quote. You know, the whole basis of anyone, you can be whatever you want. Anyone could be like an all-star golf player. I'm like, I disagree with that. I think that some people have natural gifts and, and abilities. I could take, let's say, my nephew, who, who he's not coordinated at all. And then my other nephew, who is very, he's very athletic. And there's no way I could get the same results out of those kids, given the same training. I just don't, I don't believe that. So I think it's an 80-20 rule. You know the 80-20 rule? Not necessarily. Okay. It, I mean, this applies to a lot of things. Like like you talk about like a diet. 80% of it is really what you eat and 20% of it is the exercise you put in. Yeah, yeah. So I think people, when they're successful, I think 80% of it is hard work, training, what he talks about. But I think 20% of it is, I don't want to say God-given talents, but... Something innate and you're born yeah, with it. Yeah, innate, genetic maybe. So uh, that that's my belief. I mean, he obviously has done a lot more research. But I'm just saying, and, and we talk about theater, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter how darn, you know, talented you are. There's some parts that if you don't look right, you're not getting it. Right. And that at that part, I mean... And, and I, I he, feel like that's different from everything that he talks about because yeah. it's purely like visual, right? You have mm-hmm. very little control over that. I mean, I guess you can have surgeries and stuff, but by and large, you look the way you're going to look. Yeah. And you're the height you are. Like my brother, Matt, he was called back for Beetlejuice. They had them all line up and he was the only blonde kid there. And they picked the dark-headed kid. He's like, I didn't have a chance. Like, that's the look they were going for. And same thing for Anastasia. Called back, final callback. They they went with a taller kid, and all the other guys were taller. And you can just see in the lineup when you're the outlier that way. Yeah, yeah, the outlier. You're like, yeah, I'm not not getting this. (laughs) (laughs) And that's okay if you realize as you... Whatever career you're going into, and if it happens to be the arts, and whether it's a career or a hobby, the more you understand that it's a visual art, that that's going to play into it to a certain extent. I feel like people are really sensitive about that, at least um, locally, Mm -hmm. that it's a performing art. So all that matters is my talent. And it is a visual art. Maybe not as visual as film, but I think right. it's getting there. Yeah. Well, we talk about um, it, it's a, we're storytelling, right? And if the audience doesn't believe that person, and there's some people where I've gone to a show where I'm like, oh, they like immediately they come out. You're like, I, I can't buy into that. And then they win you over. Kudos to them. But I think that that's hard to do, especially locally. In Davis County, I don't want to pick on Davis County, but people have expectations. We were talking last night about um, our next year season, 
and what are the expectations our audience is going to have coming in. Now, we can we can adjust that, but what are some things that when we put it on the season, people are like, oh, well, this has to happen. For instance, Mary Poppins, in our facility, our patron base is going to expect her to fly. Yeah. And that was one of the things we required when we did our production. I'm like, shh. <laughs> she has to. she has to fly that people are buying tickets to see her fly so we can do a lot of fun creative stuff but this is something that we need to keep in there so i mean that's just a for instance yeah of why i don't think this book applies completely to theater I mean, even sports, you have to have a certain build for things, right? Right. And he never really got into that in a way that satisfied the fact, for me, Mm -hmm. that there is a greater preponderance of expert African-Americans in the NBA than white guys. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, just, just the statistics alone. And it's the same thing we see in the performing arts, right? I mean, if you take the population of uh, blacks in America, the performing artists on Broadway... That's not the percentage. Yeah. It's a lot higher with African Americans. And he and he touches on the book about why he thinks that is the case, because oh, you're you're black, you're not smart. That was a general prejudice. Uh, yeah, a stereotype where they had those those students listen to a basketball game and they um were focusing on a player. And one subject group was led to believe the player was white and another was led to believe it was black. And so the, the player that was white was, oh, he, he's smarter. He's, you know, he, he, he really has uh, knowledge of the game. He knows what to do. But um, the black player was athletically superior. And so when you do that, when, when these kids grow up with that stereotype, oh, well, if I'm supposed to be black, then I should be in, or if I am black, I should be an athlete or a performer or things that led to those abilities just because of my genetics. So I, I don't know. I I thought he made some really good points. I got through the whole book and I was waiting for a but yeah. and it never came. <laughs> or he, he never, he, yeah, he never really argued with himself about Nuh-uh. his assertions. No, he never played devil's advocate. Yeah. And I was waiting for that. And I like really liked the book, found it interesting, but I think, um, I think you owe that almost to your audience. Be like, look, I acknowledge this. And he did it maybe kind of offhandedly every once in a while, but he made some good points. I think I expected from just the cover, right? He picks out Mozart, Federer, mm-hmm. Picasso, and Beckham. Um, I expected at some point for there to be a like truly a performing arts example. Yeah. And I never got one. You get music. Yeah. He goes back to those violinists like all the time. Um, and he spends a decent amount of time on Picasso, but he yeah. never really, do you think it, it's because it just, I think it's, by nature, it can't transfer? I think it's because it's so subjective, right? When you talk about, he even talked about Michael Phelps, you know, the greatest swimmer of all time, where you have, you can um, measure their success, right? Whether it's championships, medals, world records, whatever it is. And how do you, I mean, Tony Awards, Emmy Awards, is that how you might, like, do we say Meryl Streep is the greatest of all time, but what was her training, you know, what methods, he, that's hard for him, I think, to do research on. Yeah, I don't think you could be scientific about that because each yeah. person's going to have their own variables. Mm-hmm. So he, so when he talks about his um, his stroke, right, and it wasn't until he could replicate the same stroke every single time that he had any idea whether or not that particular hit was working for X, Y, or Z reasons. Because yes. there's too many variables. Yes, yeah. Yeah, well, nobody is going to have all of Meryl Streep's roles. So, like, how do we know? And and the circumstances underneath it. Because even with uh, sports, you have, you have rules and guidelines and parameters that, you know, everyone has to work within. And uh, there's, a, don't get me wrong, I grew up playing sports. There's a lot of variables, um... You know, was it windy that day on the field or, you know, who was pitching? So you have that kind of, those kind of things. It, there's not stats. There's just not stats yeah. Yeah. to measure performing artists. And so I kind of, I kind of want to make you come up with some though. Like, what do you think? Oh, <laughs> if, if what actors, would I? Yeah. If actors had like tradable cards. Yeah. What stats would be on the back? Well, you know, you could go like voice 
Um, you know, say that you put an audition form. You could do height. You could do your dance training and, and the, all, all the different dances, you know, how many years you've had training in each one. I mean, we we have special skills on there, right? But how many of those things factor into a particular role or with, I mean, they just had the NFL draft. You know, they have these combines where they have these kids come in and they run the 40-yard dash and they measure measure their height, their hand span that's important for quarterbacks and how high they can jump. So there's like, you know, 10 things they measure them on, but you get into performing arts and we could, the list could be go on forever, right? Yeah, well, and... I mean, inches are totally objective. You say voice type, and before I um, before I realized you're talking about like vocal part. Yeah, I was like, is she thinking about like tone? Is she yeah. thinking about like but that's, range? Or, like, but that's the other thing, and that's what I kept thinking of when he was saying, "Well, you know, you could make yourself better. You can do all these things to get better." Vocal tone, though, I mean, for the most part, that's really hard to change with someone, right? So, you could you could like impersonate someone else, but yeah, it's not going to be you. Yeah, and, and that natural tone that people, you know, you're just like Brian. I went to the Brian Stokes Mitchell concert last week. That guy could sing forever, but how do you replicate his tone? You can't, or everyone would would, or everyone should want to. I mean, because <laughs> it's gorgeous. Yeah, you'd be highly successful. So it's stuff like that where it's like I, I don't care how much training you have. I don't think you're ever going to sound like Brian Stokes Mitchell without a little bit of innate genetics that was built into you. I think, I think I agree with you about that. And I think, um, uh, I don't know. I feel like there's so much about theater, um, in our area where people just chalk it up to taste, right? Oh, mm-hmm. they just liked me or they didn't like me yeah. or I wasn't mm-hmm. what they wanted or I was what they wanted or what they're right. looking for. I mean, we have all these like euphemisms mm-hmm. for, um, Something that is esoteric and out of our control. Yeah. With that, though, I mean, it's good to know what you are and what you're not. Um, However, if you know what you're not and you want to be that, uh, there's definitely things you can do to make yourself better. For some of them. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, dance training. A lot of people, at least at our theater, some of them have had formal training, but a lot of them just picked it up through shows. And I think they found, I have a gift for this or a natural ability I didn't realize I was capable of. And whether they choose to go and take classes to improve that or they just do it through uh, the shows that they're in to gain that knowledge that uh, from the choreographers. It, I mean, you got to make yourself better, right? If you want a role, fight for it. Do the things that make you stand out to get that role and the attributes that pertain to that role. Do you think there there's a decent amount of people though that are in show after show and that don't progress? Yes. What what is missing there? No, I, I agree with you because I was reading it and it, when he gets to the part about purposeful practice, yeah. right? Like you can't just go hit a couple balls around the golf course, right, yeah. and say that that was clocking in that ten thousand hours of expertise. Yeah, you've got to have like an aim and a drive and an understanding. So how? If we're talking just about participation in show after show, Mm -hmm. what is the difference between somebody who does the show and progresses and somebody who does the show and just does the show? I think some people, and there's nothing wrong with this, they just do it because it's fun, right? Yeah. I had a friend say to me, well, I asked him, are you going to try for the show? Oh, no, that's going to be too much work. That takes way too much time. I need to do a show like My Fair Lady. And I thought, well, that's going to be more work than you think, but... (laughs) Um, so a show like that, where that was in his wheelhouse, he was comfortable with what was going to be asked of him for that particular show, not particularly dance heavy, good singer can hold a part, you know, there's a, there's some characterization in there, but he wouldn't have to stretch himself. And so when he comes to rehearsal or perform, he just wants to have a good time. And there's nothing wrong with that. We hope everyone has a good time. I take a different approach to things. I'm like, hey, if I'm going to do this, I want to stretch myself. I want to learn a new skill. I want to become better at this. So next time I can either get the role I want or I've gained something from it. Yeah. I'm all for transformative participation as opposed to just like, that was a great way to kill time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And there's not, like I said, there's nothing wrong with that mentality if that's what you're in it for. What we always, and you know this as a director, we always aim to push people a little bit beyond their comfort zone. 
because I think you get a better product when they have to work for it. You know, so for one of our goals at Centerpoint is that people come out of it with something a little bit more. Whether, I mean, new friends, great, but that they feel like they are a better performer having done it. And I think you can pick that up, whether it's watching another performer. Um, You can pick up a lot from observing that. But also our production team can give them a lot of things to either work on, think about, or push them, stretch them towards. Um, my favorite shows are those ones that stretch people. They, they Maybe they're a level five on dance and we're like, okay, hey, we're getting you to a level seven. Whatever that, that may mean. But it's like, you think you're a five, but we're going to push you beyond that. And you know what? Some people, they might not be capable of that. But if you don't try... If we don't push them, we'll never know. And we can adjust that to their capabilities because you never want to set someone up to fail. It's always putting someone in a position to succeed. Yeah. That's really important to us um, so that they feel good about the process and that also your audience can observe that you can only go as far as as your cast. And I, I really believe that casting is so important and that it's not just, I'm not talking about just talents, but their willingness to go beyond what they think they are capable of. So that kind of, what, what would you call that? Just like a trust or a drive or? Within the performer? Yeah. Or there's got to be a drive there because if they don't want to do it, they're not going to do it. I think some production teams are really good at inspiring people to do that and motivating them. And usually, I think, positive teaching is the best way to do that. You know, you don't yell at them. <laughs> that <laughs> that doesn't motivate me. I don't know if it motivates other people. But they have to see the purpose behind it. I don't want you to do this just because we think that's going to be cool looking. It's got to be part of the story. It's got to drive the story. It's got to, um, there's got to have meaning behind it instead of we're just going to have you do a backflip because that's what people like. Yeah, people like to see that, but what, is that in the character's, you know, um, uh, ability? Is it something that they would do in this show or in that scene? Uh, so I think, I think it's important to have a purpose behind what you're asking people to do taking it back to purposeful practice, right? Mm -hmm. Like if this, if the rehearsal is their practice, there has to be that kind of direction to it. I don't want to use that word because it's obviously the word for director, but like that kind of, uh, that kind of aim. Yeah. And they have to see the fruits of their labor. If they can, if they could, well, and whether that's they step back and watch their counterpart or the other cast perform be like, okay, I'm doing this up on stage and I didn't realize how cool it looks down there. Or they get the response from the audience, where the audience really appreciates it. We had, during ragtime, we had good audiences. They really appreciated the show and what we were trying to share with them. But afterwards, people would stay and talk to our performers for quite a long time. People they didn't know. And they would they would point out different moments of the show that meant something to them. You know, there was never just one moment where it was like, yes, that's it. Whether it was the little boy who was so brash and... And the way that, um, you know, he immediately befriended this little girl and asked questions about why, why does this happen? Why does that happen? Or whether it's Tata and the little girl and their relationship, or we go back to mother's transformation throughout the show. I think a lot of women connected with that. Everyone picked out something different. And I, it was great that the performers, because I think Ragtime is a huge ensemble piece. And that cast really, they bought into what the message should be and that it's we're unity we're going to do this together as a cast it doesn't matter if i'm harlem man number five or if i'm coal house or father we all have the same purpose and they all i hope that they heard all the great things that the audience had to say afterwards because they would they would stay there for uh you know we like to say 30 minutes after the show we're going to close up shop and we would just let people talk because there was something they needed to talk about yeah um with the issues that were presented so it's shows like that where, and there's other shows, I mean, fun shows too, Pirates of Penzance, Crazy for You, where if you can get them to buy into what they're here to do and the message to the audience and the story that we're telling, then I think you have people that are willing 
to go that extra mile. You're talking a lot about feedback. You're kind of hitting on that that idea where, I mean, we hear it all the time in theater. So that is not a novel concept. Yeah. Like, we're going to sit down and get notes. And so when he gets to the part where like, oh, if you want to progress, you need feedback. I'm like, yeah, genius. Like, Yeah, I think duh. we know that. <laughs> um, our industry is very aware of that particular thing. So For sure. You kind of like, you know, checked, box checked that like you get feedback from the directors and you get feedback from the audience. How does that work though? for like the production team or the theater like what kind of feedback oh particularly like over time outside of just one show we do get audience feedback our audiences are i think unique davis county has a unique audience outside of salt lake and um when you go even up to ogden and so there's sometimes where we take a risk on a show and we hear that it was not a successful risk from our audience. And you can see it in ticket sales as well. It doesn't mean it wasn't an artistically successful show, but maybe our season ticket base didn't appreciate it. And then you get big responses, um, uh, whether it's people online, reviews, other people talking in the community with shows that that um, we took a chance on and it paid off. And so you have to, there's no way to measure that. We could put shows in categories and say, okay, here's our, our, the shows that were a risk and these are the ones that paid off and that didn't. I feel like our season for next year, we tried very hard to listen. I mean, we get actors feedback, we get audience feedback, we get board members feedback, and we try to structure a season that will not be bland or old classics or just anything new, but a good mix that hopefully there's something in there for everyone. So as far as measuring feedback, you also have to be careful about where the comments are coming from so that someone online who, you know, could anonymously create a profile or whatever scathes you for something. I mean, you have to, you kind of have to weed through those things. We get letters at the theater. Some of them are good. Some of them have some, some recommendations and we just have to, we have to weed through those and think what is best for our theater, for our audiences particularly, and that serves our mission statement. Early on, there was uh, three E's thrown out for our mission statement, educate, elevate, and entertain. And so you have to look at that. Are we doing that? One of the three with each show or production we put on, does it cover two? Does it, even if it covers three, even better. So it, it's hard. The feedback is, it's good to hear. I like feedback. Um, I think it's important. That's the only way we can improve, just as he mentions in the book. But you also have to measure it, and some feedback gets more weight than others. Yeah, whether it's um, how closely related it is to the purpose you set out to achieve yeah. in the first place. Right, right. If we if we need audience feedback, we're probably. I mean, we'll take a poll. We'll you know whatever we need to do for that. But if I'm you know looking to make some decisions for production teams or just productions, I'm going to probably turn to some contributors from our artistic community where, oh, I know so-and-so worked on that. Maybe I should talk to them about their experience with the show, how it how it played to other audiences, uh, whether it's in Davis County, outside of Davis County, because uh, that's, that's important to get firsthand experience and knowledge from whether it's a director, music director, producer, choreographer. We have to have that to make educated decisions going forward. I feel like that's tricky for me as a director and a choreographer because I get um, feedback that I would say falls into pretty narrow camps. There's like the review, yeah, which because of the preponderance of community theater and the people who I think are doing the reviewing, mm -hmm. by and large, they want to be constructive and positive. Absolutely. So you're not necessarily getting um, an unfiltered opinion mm -hmm. it's going through a lot of politeness yes yeah <laughs> before it comes to you but it also isn't necessarily digging in on the craft of what you do it's right. it is through the lens of did I enjoy the evening yeah which while I would say is definitely a purpose mm -hmm. I don't find it as to be a very useful soul focus purpose because it doesn't tell me how to get there right, right. Mm -hmm. so um so I find it really hard as a director or a choreographer to get the kind of feedback that he's talking about that you need. 
Um, your cast is always maybe trying to ensure their ability to get cast by you again. Yeah, yeah. So they are going through the lens of politeness. Yeah. Right? Um, so how, how do you... Well, like between actor and theater, that, that group of people in between that isn't directly talking to the audience, like where do, where do we get our good feedback, do you think? Well, they have to, there, there can't be any politics in it, right? If you want good, honest feedback, they can't be worried about, will they choose me as a director again? Will they cast me in their next show? That's why what we do at the theater uh, is we do postmortems. We don't have the entire team there. We found that kind of fruitless because everyone's being polite. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, you know, they don't want to upset the customer or the choreographer or whoever it may be. So we try to act as an intermediary and say, what was your experience working with this, with this director or this choreographer or this lighting designer? When you, when you gave them something, your vision for the show, do you feel like they grasped it and went, went with it? Were they open to feedback and changing things on the fly? Uh, those are all important, important qualities, you know, to be flexible. I mean, we have to have a vision, but we all know that plan A never goes, goes, <laughs> goes down, right? Yeah. You we, don't implement all of plan A. No, plan A never happens. Um, I'd love to see a place where it does happen, but that, that you got to be flexible with it. So that's, that's our solution to trying to evaluate at least production team members and actors, you know, Hey, Mr. Director, Mr. Director, what was your experience with this actor? And there's been times I'll be in the middle of a callback and I'll text the last director who worked with them and said, what was your experience? I know what my experience is from a producer standpoint, but the directors, those guys, I mean, you get into the nitty gritty. I wouldn't say you invade these people's spaces, but you're pushing them and you, you see their true colors come out. And so I think that feedback's important where you don't have to be, you know, um, so-and-so doesn't have to know where that came from. I can just say, you know, with some previous experiences, this person has always brought their A game. They're pleasant to work with, you know, pick, they pick up on dance easily. They'll do anything you ask them or, you know, you have the vice versa of that, <laughs> but I think it's important to, like you said, to stop being polite and get to the nitty gritty. And it doesn't mean you have to be mean. Right. Um, just a fair evaluation is is important because that's the only way you're going to improve or allow someone else to grow and improve. I found that, yeah, some of my most enjoyable conversations are when it's like, yeah, don't let's not even talk about if you liked it, though. Yeah. Like, I don't care <laughs> if you liked it or didn't like it. Can we talk about the mechanics of it or the choices of it and, like... Well, and I think that's the hard part. You, you know, you talk about reviewers and they have two, two and a half hours to evaluate your piece of work that you've been working on for two months to a year, depending on, you know, when you start working on concepts and all that. You know, we did a show recently where it was a, it's a tough piece because it, I don't think it's like a blockbuster. People don't love it. But, you know, there's a place for it um, in our community. It's, it's a fun show to tell the story of. And I was worried about the turnout of actors if there were gonna there was gonna be enough um, interest in it. And we cast our show and we cast it with a lot of unknown people. And I was like, okay, here we go. I don't know where this where we're gonna end up with this. And how hard the cast worked. And we were delightfully surprised at the. And I wouldn't say surprised, but we're like, oh, we did get to where we needed to be. I didn't know with the input, what the output product would be. Sure. And they, people don't see that. They don't know what we had to work with. And I'm not saying these were lesser quality performers. They were just unknown to us and the difficulty, the technical difficulties of the show and where it ended up. And I think audiences ended up enjoying it, but it could have gone the other way so quickly um, had things not aligned. So that's, they also don't get to see that. It's like, do you have any idea how hard we worked or this person worked to get to that point. That's where the evaluation of a show. Yeah. You still have to, we still have to please the audiences. They're the ones who are paying money to see it. But from my perspective, the show was a success, whether it did well financially, whether the audience thought it was, you know, the best show ever. I, I don't know. I, I kind of don't care. I mean, I'd care to a point, but to me, the show ended up successful. 
you're kind of talking a little bit about like the iceberg illusion that yes. he talks about in the book where it's mm-hmm. like all this comes. So have you ever been sitting in an audition where you're like, a director is like, wow, that was amazing. They must be so gifted. And you're, you're sitting there going like, I know that person and they work their fanny off. Yeah. Oh, all the time. All the time where you're thinking, I've seen this person progress over the last five years. And the fact that they can stand there and do that today is amazing. In fact, they see it in our academy all the time. They have fantastic stories of little wallflower kids who, you know, their mom signed them up because they weren't interested in anything else. Or And these kids blossom. While it might not be as satisfying to see an adult do that as a child, we see it all the time where someone starts out in the chorus and, yeah, they were dragged there because their wife was in the show and we needed an extra guy. And now they're a leading man who has, you know, the principal role and they found a talent they didn't know they had, but they worked for it. Do do you have an example where that's happened on a technical level where the audience has just appreciated a moment, but not Uh fully understood what went into creating that? Um, When we did Scarlet Pimpernel in 2012, there's that transition from his room his study into, uh, well, to France. They have to go from there, from the study to the boat to France, saving people from the guillotine. And we built, and I say we, I didn't build it. I'm going to take zero credit for it. Uh, Scott Montgomery's idea and Jay Clark executed this fog curtain so that when they're transitioning, it goes dark and then you see a boat come out and there's a fog curtain behind it shielding what the setup of the guillotine behind. And then when the fog goes away, all of a sudden, bam, you know, there's the, there's the guillotine and we're in France. And I don't, I mean, he worked really hard on that fog curtain and building it, testing it over and over and over again. So yeah, that's just, you know, it was a simple moment. I'm sure people were like, oh, that was cool. But it was like, do you have any, do you have any idea how many hours that took (laughs) or money? (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's a tiny example of, of some of those moments that have paid off. And and even the car for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang that Scott put into that car, and it flies twice, it's on stage for maybe a total of 15 minutes, but the hours that he put into that and replicating it, um, I mean, we didn't replicate it exactly because of the length of how long the, the car is, but we shortened it down and he did... Man, he he went down to every last detail. So it's gorgeous car. It's a really pretty car. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very very pretty car. (laughs) Tell me a story about an adult, if you can specifically, like that you know got to a point of accolades through practice. Should I use a name? Sure, if you feel like okay, that's a positive story. So I can't. It is. It is a positive story. So uh, Ryan Zog, who he came and did West Side Story. I think he had, he's a basketball player. I know that about him. He grew up playing basketball in high school. I don't know if he had ever been in a show, maybe one before that. But you know, he's like, I'll I'll come try out for this show. And so he was in, he was in that show, and did a good job. I mean, he worked hard. I mean, the dancing for that show, all those kids worked so hard for that. Uh, but he was Nibbles, who you know, one of the sharks at the very beginning. So I remember they ran that over and over and over again. And then he was in Adam's family, and then I think he did Mary Poppins, and then he went somewhere else and did a show. So that was 2017. 2018, he came and did Camelot, and he had, you know, a it's not the principal role, but he was Mordred. Yeah, it's a significant part. Yeah, and did a very nice job, and then did in Ragtime. He was Henry Ford. So, uh, you know, the parts, you know, he, he continues to fill out these parts very well. And then Chitty Chitty Bang Bang at his audition and callback, it was like, is this the same kid that we saw two and a half, three years ago? And he nailed it. He did. And I hope he never listens to this because I don't ever like to to uh, <laughs> give him compliments because it'll go to his head. No, it won't. But he he's done a fantastic job. And to see that transformation over two and a half years... Because he has he has worked at it. And one of the things I've noticed with doing these ensemble parts is he's really picked up and watched other actors. And whether he has a natural ability or not, I'm not great at, I couldn't tell you the process of that. But I've seen him really pick up on what other people do well and learn from that. And I think that's huge in 
in an actor's ability, whether you need a, you know, the principal part or you're happy with chorus or it depends on the show sometimes for people, but there's, there's something to learn in every situation. I think especially as an ensemble member where you're not looking up to a lead or a principal, but you can learn from them and you can take that into your next show, your next role, whatever that may be. When Centerpoint is looking to progress as a theater from show to show, Mm -hmm. do you ever do what he talks about where he's like, you got to pick something like just above your ability. And, Mm. you know, he talks about like the ice skaters, professional ice skaters falling more time. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of times. And it's because they're attempting jumps that are above their ability. Do you feel like, I guess this is a two part question. Do you feel like you do that? Do you feel like your audience allows you to do that? Um, so that, yes, yes. And yes, we pick shows, um, and we can even go back to when center point was Rogers when we did Jekyll and Hyde in, in 2008, was that? Oh, I was pregnant. Hang on. I yeah. should know this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was would be, 08? um, yep. 2008. Kay. And I know we had board members who were like, what are you doing? You can't do Jekyll and Hyde at this theater. And um, we had done Little Shop the year before, and we had done Aida. Not that those are the same content. But kind of preparatory. Yeah. A little Aida's ambitious, and Little Shop is a little more on the dark dark side. And so we tried it there, and, and it did really well. And we transferred that that over to Centerpoint in 2014, I think we did that one. Tell Two Cities was probably the next one where it's like, this is massive. This is a, this show, because I had seen it out at Hale, I had listened to the soundtrack, and Scott Montgomery directed that one. When we asked him to direct that, (laughs) he took a moment, he's like, yeah, yeah, I think we can do that. And he dug in immediately. We actually, um, I was on a business trip in New York, and so he he tagged along and met the composer, um, uh, not the composer, the writer of the show, Jill Santoriello. And just picked her brain on how we can make this thing successful. And what are things that you thought worked for the production? And what are things you could cut? Because that was our concern was... This is long. It's a long show and it's an end. The storyline is confusing. Yes. More so than Les Mis or... Well, Man of La Mancha. Oh, and yeah. That's just, it's hard for people to... Where are we? Yeah. <laughs> who Who is he now? Is he Don Quixote? But... So with that preparation, we knew that was going to be a big show, but we thought it was something our audiences would take to people around here. Lovely Miz. It has a lame Miz quality to it. it, has a redeeming quality at the end. And so that was probably our next big jump. Is it something that we could make palatable? And when I say palatable, I mean that we could make it clearly understood. Were we in London? Were we in Paris? We, we did away with, I mean... Probably history buffs would kill us or p- purists, but we got, we got away with the French accent because we, they're so hard to do. And for that length of show that no, we'll just, we'll just cut that. We'll still do British. Um, hopefully that will clarify that if they're French, they're just speaking American. <laughs> and if they're British, they're speaking British. Um, we cut, we took Jill's recommendations on what she would cut. And with her blessing, it, we didn't have any problems with the, with the licensing house. And we made a set that was, that kept the show moving. Um, it was transformative. And this is a case of Scott coming up with an idea and everyone getting on board. The entire production team was like, yes, we all need to, this is our goal. And it was very synergistic because the word I'd use working on that production team. So that was a big feat. And then I think the next one was Ragtime. And I even remember when we announced we were doing Ragtime because we do that breakfast and we invite actors and someone's like, you guys can't do Ragtime. And I was, I wasn't angry because I was like, we can't do Ragtime. But the, the, um, I don't know, the competitive nature in me came out where it's like, we're going to do ragtime and it's going to be good. You just wait. And I think the challenges with ragtime are just the casting of it in Davis County. And up until the week we opened, we found our little coal house the day after we opened. We had we had four of them and we needed one more and we found her, the cutest thing ever, the day after we opened. So we worked until we knew we could 
do the show justice. And so I think, yeah, there's, there's, um, occasions where it's time to kind of up the ante with the productions we choose to do. There's a common thread to all of those that is, I don't know. I, I want to ask you if it, if it has to be that they're all drama. That's a good point. Um, I think, <laughs> or do you feel, or do you feel it's, that part of that challenge of, of it being raising the bar on yourself is partly because the community, maybe not the drama content, yeah. but the other aspects of the content that can come along with drama that are yeah. challenging for Davis County. Right. Um, you know, the racism thing, I mean, just hit, hit it the nail right on the head with what was going on in our country and still is not to, um, I mean, it's still going on, but it was heightened for us, of course, during ragtime, because that was always on our minds of, of what was going on in, in our world today. But with dramas, I feel like the pendulum swings a lot harder. And, and I think, I actually think, I'll say this, I think comedies are harder to do. I, um, I think it's harder for actors to do. So on a craft level? On a craft level, for sure. So, but I, I think, I think people can go to a comedy and not hate it in general. Sure. But I think with dramas, you the risk is so much higher uh, as in the fact that I think you could fail so much more. They're, they're not going to feel neutral about it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the shows, those those kind of um, anti-up shows. And, I, and I, I don't feel that way necessarily about ragtime. But I think because um, it is such an actor show that uh, – and a lot of people don't do it – that I don't think we were going to necessarily fail as far as the presentation of it, but we could fail with the casting of it. Sure. Um, so that's where I think that was the big risk. With Tale of Two Cities, maybe it wasn't, maybe people weren't going to hate it, but we could bore them to death. That's because sure. of the length. And because the- of the length. So just in general, I would say dramas, either I think they're going to love it or hate it. And there's a lot of shows out there. And, and comedies play in this. A lot of people... I know really like you're in town. I don't know if our audiences, you know, just given the title that they have to get past, I don't know if they'd get the humor either. It's so you feel like uh, to put it in, I don't know, bounce terms where he's like, it's got to be a gap that you know how to get there. Yeah. You don't, you don't know how to maybe get the audience mm-hmm. there. <laughs> yeah. Past that title. And, and, and that's with, there's some comedic elements, you know, we, we could talk about Les Mis where there's prostitution in there. There's some, there's some pretty graphic lyrics if people are listening, but our audience seems to forgive that when there's redeeming qualities throughout the show. And, and at the end comedies, it's not as redeeming, right? If there's crass humor or if there's uh, something that's maybe a little off-putting or it feels like you're treating a subject flippantly. They don't like that. At least that's what we found with our audiences. The, the comedy, you have to walk a fine line. So I say that the pendulum swings harder with the dramas, but the comedy, you can play it in a safe zone and you can round the edges off of it and most people will like it. But I don't think they're going to love or hate it. But that's not necessarily a gap you guys want to try to up it's because... Right. That's not really in our mission statement. It's not in our, our goals. It's not in our wheelhouse. And it's not what our audiences, at least um, we go back to that feedback that they have appreciated. So yeah, we, we kind of sidestep those ones. Because one of the great things about the arts is that everyone can have their own perspective and their unique experiences that that help them relate to a show or not, whatever you want to call that. And that's the art side of it. The business side is, is that money does talk and you have, and you have to know your audience. Um, I'm not saying we're going to do every show that's a blockbuster. I think there's a lot of great shows that we do that, that maybe aren't financially successful, but the people who came and saw them have really appreciated the message or whatever it may be. But we do have to run it as a business as well. And you have to, you really have to know your audiences and we're trying to get better at that. I don't think you can ever say, yes, we know exactly what they want. We have a good idea of what they want, but only with data and time and history. And that's the other problem with the changing demographics. Uh, we have a very old season ticket base, but we've noticed a lot, a lot more younger 
families are coming to the theater and that we have to keep that in mind with show selection as well. Do you feel like you have um, a show on on the horizon either this season or next season or on the short list for a future season? Yeah, yeah. Where you're like, yeah, that'll be the one that ups our game again. Not particularly. It's usually the ones that hit me upside the head. Like I don't realize, like Ragtime, I knew that was going to be a challenge. I think the fact that we've done Scarlet Pimpernel and the audiences already love it around here, I don't... That's kind of a gimme? Yeah. I think Newsies, not because I think audiences will love it, but the casting of that is also challenging. And it's usually, those are the shows that, that give me anxiety, are the casting ones where, you know, we got to have... We're going to have some boys that and can gonna dance. And they're going to have to sing and dance. Yeah. yeah. They're going to have to sing and dance. And it's kind of West Side Story style. Yeah. Yes, very much so. So we'll see. I mean, that's probably the one. I don't think it ups our ante. I think people thought we were going to do it eventually. So <laughs> so you, so it, it kind of doesn't work for what he's talking about with uh, bridging that gap. It doesn't doesn't count if it's obvious. Yeah, I don't think so. I um, I mean, maybe it could. But I think given the context of what he's talking about, Because no. it's art and subjective? Yeah. Because, I mean, I, he doesn't he doesn't address it being obvious at all, but that's just because, like, well, duh. Like, yeah. Um, there There's the way to... That's a, that's a good point. Because I think you can see, I mean, when you talk about bridging the gap, I can see where I need to be. This is where I am. If I, if, if I have to beat this time by, you know, 0.5 yes. seconds, there's... Yeah. There's things I can do or techniques I can put into place. For us, I I mean, we talk about... So I've been involved with this particular organization since... If you count the first time they put a paintbrush in my hand, that would be 97. <laughs> <laughs> 96, maybe. So the reason I've stayed involved um, over the past 20 plus years is because I have seen that improvement I'm not saying it's like, oh, we got to get to the top of the mountain and then we're there. I, that's That should never be the way you think of it. It's always, well, we're, we get better every year. And that's what I've seen. We've improved our practices, whether it's on the production side of it, marketing, actor appreciation, whatever that may be. Every year, I think we get just a little bit better. So whether, and, and I think that does translate to productions and production quality. But as far as saying bridging the gap, I don't know if there's like a big, I don't think you can look at certain moments and say, that's where we bridge the gap. I think it's gradual for our organization. But when you're talking about like shows, like where you've taken the next leap, I know a lot of people would love to see Sweeney Todd. I love Sweeney Todd. I don't think our audiences are ready for it. And I don't know if it really serves our mission statement, but that, that I could see that would be one where we up our ante, but I don't know if it's necessarily upping our ante or changing our delivery of the quality you already have achieved you know, not even the quality but what people come to expect the type of shows we do okay. and i don't and i don't mean that you're not saying content or maybe content well it's a diff it's a difference of content but it's not necessarily a difference of process yeah it wouldn't be a different process but you know you talk about a show like rent a show i also really enjoy that's not for our audiences. I think you have, like I said, you got to know your audience, know what you are and what you aren't. And as soon as we try to be something we aren't, you know, you you lose that identification that what's gotten you there. You know, I look back at the people who have built this organization and, you know, building upon the shoulders of those people that came before you and honoring them. And it doesn't mean we don't progress in different ways, but you still, but progressing doesn't mean Going outside of what you do and what you know. A change of identity. Yeah. Talk to me about deep domain knowledge because I feel like um, Centerpoint's on its 10th season. Next two seasons. Next year is our 10th. 10th season. Do you feel like you guys have like deep domain expertise that there's like an institutional knowledge? Yes. Yes. For the most part, it helps that a lot of people have been around for quite some time. But we're still learning. We're we're still a very young organization. You know, we talk about ten seasons. You go back to to RMT where I think they had four, 13, 14. You go back to Pages Lane before that. It's hard because I feel like in the last ten years, theaters really kind of taken a different approach. 
We're not into the standard musical where you don't break the fourth wall. You, the the tenor stands on stage and belts out a beautiful tune and we move on. I know that sounds more Rodgers and Hammerstein-esque rather than, you know, shows that have come out in the 90s where you or or even have been um, maybe revised. But I'm thinking of shows that are reinventing the will. So there's a new show. Uh, there's Oklahoma has a little bit of that on Broadway. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but even taking My Fair Lady, a classic that they changed the ending on Broadway. And we'll, we'll do something. We're still playing around with how we want ours to read, but they're kind of updating these pieces. We're saying that was a great piece of theater, but we need to update it for our audiences. And so while we're not into extreme ex- or experimental theater or developmental theater, we take a show and, and maybe take a twist on it, you know, like you did for Pirates of Penzance last year, something that needed to be freshened up so that um, newer audiences could enjoy it. And maybe I should say younger audiences, but I think our older audience appreciated the subtitles and, you know, help give them, oh, I get what's going on now. They're speaking my language. Um, that's not in our wheelhouse, but we like to to take a slice of that and add it in. We're not going to go 360 on a on transforming carousel, you know. Right. Um, but I think audiences do appreciate that to an extent. And that's something that we're trying to learn how to incorporate. Do you feel like the actors can have a deep domain knowledge? Like, obviously, all the theaters around here kind of have mm-hmm. people who frequent them. And sometimes yeah. it's geographic and sometimes it's socially motivated how actors tend to self-sort and sometimes it's production team motivated, mm-hmm. but they do. They tend, yeah. they tend to self-sort as, yeah. as much as they say that yeah. theaters are political, actors are political too. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but do you, do you feel like that having recurring themes amongst your cast in terms of people, that yeah. that's a kind of deep domain knowledge? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think they're part, they're, they're part of our identity, uh, the organizational culture of what we've established. And so um, I was actually having this conversation uh, with Jared Haddock the other day where we love, we love those people who have been so loyal to us and that we see time and time again. But in order for us to continue to grow and, and, and hopefully envelop or bring in new talent, we, we, we have to mix it up. If we continue to cast the same people in role after role after role not only will our actors get weary of that, but our audiences will as well. But the great thing about people that have been around a while, who've done maybe 10 shows there, is that they really are a part of our identity. And they, you know, kind of almost the new people, they put their arm around them, you know, kind of show them the ropes. And not that I think we're a real complex organization, but we have our own processes and procedures that that people have to get used to. It's like, oh, that's different than what they do, you know, at Terrace Plaza or the Hope Box. And there's nothing wrong with with their process being different than ours. It's what works for our organization. And so, yeah, I think the actors are primary to that. They're at the core of who we are. What kind of things do you think are essential knowledge? Like the things that you, that, Hmm, let's break this down maybe by task. Okay. <laughs> the, a, protect, a production team member, and you can pick which one because I think that's going to be pretty specific. But like, yeah. what do they have to know? Coming into it? Yeah. Like, what are you looking for? Like, It's interesting that you know, we had our first production meeting last night for Hunchback. And, you know, there's a lot we have to talk about and get through. But kind of like laying down, this is our path. And communicating is extremely important early on so that we're all on the same page so we don't get two weeks out and we're like oh (laughs) I didn't know that was going to be in the show I guess I should paint that you know things like that but communicating and collaborating if we have someone who's going to come in and just do whatever they want and doesn't appreciate the vision of the show that's a problem but probably at the core of that is there's just some things that we as an organization need from a show and whether that's in specific and specific, um, you know, like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, we picked that show because there were going to be children in it, and that gave an opportunity to those child children actors um, that don't get a lot of opportunities, at least on our main stage. So it was important that they know that. So um, it's important that they understand 
our where we're going with a show, our concept, and that we all communicate and we collaborate together to make that happen. This is a this is a tricky topic, but I I was so interested in it when he talks about the economics of, um, say in a sport where there is clearly a winner, there's yeah. a zero sum game. Yeah, I at my game, you yes. automatically lose, mm-hmm. right? And then he says, but in actual economics. If somebody's more productive, then they can spend more money and yeah. they can buy more, uh-huh. and it's and it's a win-win thing. Um, I was thinking about how, like, I feel like actors always view it as a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's true? Oh, I, I don't the, think it's true at all. But that they view it that way. Oh, I think I think some of them do. Um, I think others are, you know, and whether we're talking about getting roles or we're talking about a production on its whole, if my counterpart does a great job on stage, that doesn't mean that I can't do a great job on stage. It means that she's, she or he is doing a great job of telling the story. Especially, I mean, you want, you want to be a start of a part of a strong production, right? And so you want talented actors to surround you on stage. They only make you look better. I, and actually I had, um, I have a friend who does theater and I notice whenever she auditions, she recruits men <laughs> to come. I mean, she doesn't want to recruit her competition, but she is happy to recruit men to come along and audition with her because she's like, it's just going to be a better show. You know, the more talent that we have on that stage, everyone wins, right? And so, yeah, I get it. I grew up playing sports, so I get the competitive nature of, you know, I have to beat this person out for a role. But I think in general, when we put on strong pieces of theater, whether it's at center point or, you know, late in amphitheater, wherever, I think good art begets be good art. And that engages engages audience. If they see a good production somewhere, they're more likely to go and see another live theatrical production. If they see a bad one, that might dampen their spirits about, shill, you know, shilling out 20 bucks to see the next show. So... I mean, if you look at it on, on a really big hole, I think, and that's why I think there's so much theater in, in the, along the Wasatch Front is because people enjoy it. And we've built that community. We've built that, um, that culture of theater. Uh, along. I, I had a friend from England and she's, and she said, I can't believe how much theater goes on in this state and just, you know, in Salt Lake, I'm like, it's because, uh, we've harbored it, you know, through years and years and I, years, like 50, 60, a hundred years. I mean, that was really important to Brigham Young actually, when he came to the Valley, um, was to establish a playhouse. So yeah, I get it. I, I, I get when actors are disappointed when they don't get a role and that's hard in the moment to be like, it's okay because it, it's good for everyone. No, you you didn't get the role, but hopefully they can see the larger benefits of it because more theaters open up or more people do productions and that's more opportunities for them. What other um, insights maybe have you had about this from this book that we haven't talked about? I think there is something that, that's to be said. Uh, you know, he talks about Tiger Woods, Serena Williams, their parents getting very involved and even... Um, you know, him as a table tennis star where, I mean, you, you think, oh, this is good. This is good enough. And then you meet someone who's better than you and they, you know, whoop you, it, whether <laughs> it's table tennis or whatever. And I think that's a defining moment for people where they can choose, okay, am I going to fight and get better or is this what I'm going to settle for? And when you look at that in theater, I think some people are fine being what they are. These are the roles I get and that's fine with me. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you face that challenge of, okay, I just went to this audition and that girl or guy was clearly better than me. What do I do to get to, I don't want to say beat them out, but to get the role next time. And that's where you see people, okay, I need to get back into voice lessons. Or man, is there a dance class around here? What can I do? to get better. And I, I think that's a personality thing. A lot of times some people are just fine, you know, like, Hey, I'm great being in the chorus. And I love those people. Those are wonderful people, but I think it's what's in it for them. What did they want out of it? And if it's, they want to dig in and spend, you know, X amount of money and X amount of time trying to get better, 
hey, more power to you. You know, I was actually watching an episode of This Is Us last night, and it's the one where Beth um, looks back on her her kind of career as a ballet dancer when she's growing up, and and she's willing to dig in, and she she's willing to put in the hours and work harder and harder, but the money isn't there, and she realizes, you know, you got to pull out. And so, you know, is it you have to also, is it worth it? You know, what are other things you could be doing with your time instead of, or with your money instead of taking vocal dance classes and, um, you know, are you away from your family? And I get that even when people come and, and volunteer to be in a show, when they say, I'm only willing to accept this role. Well, for that show, that might be what's worth it to them for them to be away from their family. And that's just fine with us. But there, I mean, that is, you just, I think it's for each person to decide, um, and what the results of it are. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely talking about like, this is expert performance and some people maybe don't want to be experts. Right. Um, yeah, I, I have a friend and I was talking about, I was so excited the Olympics were coming up and this was, um, this was for the 2018 Olympics. She's like, that just sounds like the worst thing ever is that those people work all their lives for one moment to get a a medal, if even that. And I could see your point. I'm like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other things they could have done, but if that's what that person desires, I mean, and those are the truly, those are the people we hear about, right? Who, who really master and craft or master their craft and obtain near perfection, you know? (laughs) Um, But what was the cost of it? You can look at, theater in Utah, you can look at theater in New York. Are the people in New York naturally more talented? No, I don't think so. No. Um, I think they're the ones who were willing to go to the expert level to take, and I can say this because I have a brother out there who's doing it right now, but they're willing to, to go. That's what they want in life. More power to you. I, but I don't think there's just a natural, you know, dispersion in New York of, of, more talented people they're the they're the people who are willing to put in their time and we have a lot of really talented people out here who they want to have a career they want to have a family but they also enjoy theater and that's where I think at least center point fits that niche is that person who expert people we we love to have them but the people who look at it as a hobby and they're and they're really good at it too I like, it reminds me of when he talks about the violin school, right? There's, there's the people who are going to be the soloists for the orchestras, mm-hmm. world-class orchestras. Yeah. The people who are going to play in the world-class yeah. orchestra. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to be a soloist. And uh-huh. there's the people who are going to, like, teach other people. Yes. <laughs> where he breaks it down in that particular school. There's the people who practice regularly and practice well. And mm-hmm. there's the people who practice so much more and practice so much harder. And then yeah. there's the people who dedicate their lives to it. And you have to, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, percentages or increments, is that a thousand more hours a year, does that make you, whether someone practices a hundred, does that make you 10 times better than that person? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't totally agree with him on that. I, mean, I, he, I think, yeah. I feel like he would say, yeah, I think he does. would. Yeah, I think he would. But I'm, I think that, that those extra hours definitely are going to, um, lead you away from the pack. You know, you're going to go above the, the um, you know, the average, the status quo, whatever. But is it, you know, the the cost of doing, is that worth it to you? And I don't think so. I, I mean, I'm not saying for yeah, that. Yeah, I'm for, just saying. Your personal choice. Yeah, my personal choice is that that's not for me, depending on what we're talking about. But <laughs> but I'm, but just the, ex, you know, you, you look at the amount of time versus the amount of time you get or the, the percentage you get better. And you can't measure stuff like that, right? Can we really say that Tiger Woods is 10 times better than, you know, this other golfer that who's on the tour, but we never hear about, yeah. never places? I don't know. Even even with his stats, right? I mean, yeah. I, I don't think that you have that kind of mathematic certainty. It's always fascinating to hear other people's perspectives and what they get out of something. I mean, just like we were talking about theater – Someone could see the same piece and be like, oh, mother's story that just saying to me and oh, the racism thing. But with books, any piece of art, right? We all interpret it differently. So it's always fascinating to hear your thoughts. <laughs> Thank you. Seriously. Well, no, I, I love because it's not like talking to a reviewer with you. Like we get nitty gritty. Yeah, we craft can, and mechanics. Yeah, we can get into it. And 
we don't agree all the time, but and not that we have to, but I think we understand each other's points. Yeah, and and you make points. <laughs> you know, what I mean? like you you make points, and you have like thought process behind it. Where I'm like, I can see that. I can see that. That gives me something to chew on in my brain for a bit. Yeah, like let that. me mold that around. That's why I liked you sent the questions yesterday because I was like, mm, oh yeah, I didn't think about it that way. <laughs> this is where her brain went. Yeah, totally. So anything else that, yeah, that you thought about it that you want to chat about? I should have made notes like you, but I was listening all to my little, All my little tabbies. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, whenever I have the rare opportunity to get my hands on a book, I like to underline things too. Because then I don't ever go back and look at them. But for some reason, it's like when I write something down in conference talks would be what I'd point to. But I'm like, yeah, they could say that. But if I write it down, for some reason, just me writing it, I remember it. Yeah, it's like it's how I process yeah. it. Yeah. You can a, tell. Just the visual words of it. Yeah. I haven't read a book in our library if it's not like hard copy. Bent, bent pages oh, and yeah. tabbed and uh-huh. underlined things scrawled. In the, if it's clean, it hasn't been read by me. Yeah. My, my mother's the same way. It's a well loved book. <laughs> Krista, thank you so much for chatting with me today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Our next Between the Lines episode will be on the book Dojo to Page, Write Fight Scenes, and will be a discussion with the book's author, Christine Haggerty. Look for that special Between the Lines episode coming in July. Thank you to my guest, Krista Davies. Theme music by Gordon Vettis. In the Telling is hosted and produced by me, Liz Christensen. Thanks for listening. Been thinking about the same old song and Taking me so long to notice how the music changes, like the pictures on the wall when the.